You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Father, we join our voices together with thousands of others who this morning woke up wherever it is that they live, anticipating joining with brothers and sisters to praise and adore you. So we ask, Lord, that you'd receive our praise today, that it would join in this chorus this global chorus of praise to you because you alone are worthy of it. You alone deserve it. So would you receive our worship this morning? Would you be pleased that our worship of you would not merely be lip service, but as we even continue now in your word, as we take the Lord's Supper in a few minutes All of us, all of who we are, would worship you and praise you because you're worthy of all of it. Thank you for the privilege of worshiping together with your people. Thank you for what you're doing in us and through us for your glory and for our joy. Help us now, Holy Spirit, as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 20. That's where we're at uh, today. Luke chapter 20. If you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around. Um, can get you one so you can follow along. Uh, we're going to be looking at verses 19 through 26 this morning. And as you're finding your way there, I have to ask, did you file your taxes? Right? Typically tax day here in the U.S. is April 15th. Some of you are like, oh no, was that this week? Um, I think Tuesday the 18th was officially tax day, at least that's what my calendar told me. If you forgot about that, consider this your friendly reminder. Go file an extension this afternoon. Um, Now, I know there are mixed feelings when it comes to things like taxes, but they have this sense of inevitability, right? It's a fixed date on the calendar. At least, again, like I said, on my calendar, it literally says I subscribe in my phone or whatever to like U.S. holidays, and it just says tax day as if it's a holiday, Right? It's inevitable. Statesman, author, founding father Benjamin Franklin wrote a letter to a French physicist in 1789 named Jean-Baptiste Leroy. And in it, in this letter he wrote, he coined this phrase. You might be familiar with it. He was writing about the uniqueness of the U.S. Constitution that had just been ratified. He writes this. This is Ben Franklin. Our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. Now, that's Ben Franklin. Maybe you've heard a version of that last phrase, right? The only certain thing in life is death and taxes. And even if Mr. Franklin didn't know it, his phrase would serve as an interesting title for today's sermon. (laughs) Death and taxes. Luke chapter 20. Who knew, right? I bet you he had no idea that this is how I was going to use his letter to a random French physicist. So let's read our text this morning, and maybe this will make some sense. Uh, Luke chapter 20, starting in verse 19, 
And then we're going to read through verse 26 today. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Verse 19. The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them, but they feared the people. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere so that they might catch him in something he said, so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. So they asked him, Teacher, we know that you speak and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? But he perceived their craftiness and said to them, Show me a denarius whose whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. He said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. This is God's word for us today. We're only going to read these few verses and there's a fair amount to cover. Now, If you noticed, we're picking up right where we left off last week. In fact, if you were with us last Sunday when Jesus tells this parable about these uh, wicked, unfaithful tenants who are are renting a, a vineyard from a gracious owner, we could have read verse 19 at the end of that section last week. So there's really a bridge here. Uh, Jesus has been teaching now in the temple courts. Luke tells us the crowds of people are, are hanging on his every word. And he's being approached now by the chief priests and the teachers of the law, the scribes, who do not like him and they're looking for ways to discredit him. So last week he tells this parable, right? They call his authority into question. Who, who gave you the right to say and do what you're doing? And so he tells them this parable about owner of a vineyard and these wicked tenants who, despite the owner's patience, treat the owner with contempt, beat up his servants, and ultimately kill his beloved son. And so verse 19 picks right up there. The scribes and the chief priests who just questioned Jesus' authority are seeking to lay hands on Jesus at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But... They feared the people. And the funny thing is, they were right. Jesus was absolutely talking about them. And rather than self-reflection, like, I don't know, maybe he's talking about me. Maybe I should think about what he's just said. They don't do that. Their anger builds. It says they sought to lay hands on him at that very hour. The problem was, they couldn't do anything Because the people, the crowds of people, loved what Jesus was telling them. They were hanging on his every word. They were intrigued. And so these chief priests and scribes and Pharisees and others feared what the people might do to them if they opposed Jesus more. It would be worse for them in front of the people. It would be worse for them in the court of public opinion. There was risk involved For them, in losing the the power, the privilege, the authority, the persuasive reality that they used to hold amongst the people, but they they don't anymore. So so what do they do? Well, they can't challenge Jesus head on. That's not working. So they change tactics. Instead, 
they try to trick him. Maybe we can get him to trip up. Maybe we can ask him a series of questions and he'll, he'll say the wrong thing. And they're going to use, at the time, a pretty current hot-button issue to do it. In this case, they're asking him about paying taxes to Caesar. That's the hot-button issue they're going to use to try to get Jesus in trouble. The word used in our passage is the word tribute. So that's how they're going to go after Jesus. Now, as we read, we see Jesus doesn't fall into their trap. He actually ends up outlining a couple of pretty significant theological truths and realities that not only apply to his first century followers, which we'll look at, but I think what Jesus begins to lay out here actually applies to every follower of Jesus all through the New Testament and to you and me this morning. Because it doesn't matter if we live under a monarchy or under a dictator or an emperor or like here in the U.S., right, we get to vote for our own leaders. We all pay taxes. We all pay tributes to different things and in different ways. We all do. We give dollars and time and honor and respect. All these things are tributes, if you will. We give them to all sorts of people and all sorts of things. And the question underneath it is, well, why? Why why do we do this? What does each payment, if I can use it that way, whether it's dollars or time or honor or respect or whatever, what does each payment mean? And further, when we pay that tribute or offer that tribute or pay that tax, offer that respect or honor, what does it say about ultimate reality? Maybe we don't think about it this way, but, but let me give you an example. None of us are, well, there might be some in the room. I don't, I don't know. Maybe you're a, a citizen of the British Commonwealth. Maybe you're not. Maybe you're Canadian. That's close, right? They still have the queen on their money. Right? What does it say? If, I, if I'm a citizen of the British Commonwealth and I kneel before an earthly king or I bow out of respect, it's, a, it's an honor, it's a tribute, if you will, of respect, Right? What does my temporary submission to that earthly authority say about my ultimate submission to God as a supreme authority? Right? What am I saying when I do that? To boil it down, let me ask in this simple way, to whom does my tribute belong? And ultimately, to whom does my life belong? That's the question underneath I want to get at. And the answer to that, I think, is this, that Jesus starts to outline in this passage. Because God is supreme over all, we offer to God all honor, both through and above our tributes to every other authority. I know it's a long run-on sentence, but let me say it again. Because God is supreme over, over all, we offer to God all honor. And we do that both through and above our tributes to every other authority. Let me, we'll unpack that here as we work through our text. Kind of two main points from the text this morning. Uh, One, the the problem of politics. And two, paying tribute. So let's, let's get into it. First, the problem we see of politics happening here in the text. Now, these chief priests and these scribes, they didn't just dislike Jesus. They hated him. They despised him. It says, Luke tells us they wanted to lay hands on him, and that doesn't mean they wanted to pray for him. They wanted to grab him and 
drag him outside of the city and push him down a hill and throw big stones on him until he died. That's how much they despised him. Why? Why did they hate him? Why did they despise him? Why, did, why was anger their response? Because Jesus was pressing on something in them that they did not like. Jesus was confronting their pride. Some have said the problem in politics here in the U.S. is all the money in politics. That could be. I actually think the problem in politics is the same problem in the human heart in general. Pride. It's pride. The root sin being exposed here is pride. An unholy obsession with self. They had power. They wanted to keep it. They had authority. They wanted to keep it. They had prominence. They wanted to keep it. They weren't concerned for the well-being of the people, at least not ultimately. They weren't concerned for how the pagan Roman uh, lifestyle might affect God's people and their faith passed down from Moses. They weren't concerned about those things. Ultimately, they were concerned about themselves. And that's one of the reasons that pride is so insidious as a sin, as a, as a root problem, because pride tends to enlist other sins for its own protection and growth. If pride was a recruiter, it goes and finds and gathers to itself other sins in order to protect itself and grow itself. Here's what I mean. Mark, uh, excuse me, Matthew 22 and Mark chapter 12 tell us this same story, the same interaction. So this week in your reading, if you want to include parts of Matthew 22 and Mark 12 along with Luke 20, you'll see how these accounts of this interaction by Jesus and his words kind of harmonize together. It's, they're all really helpful. So how do I know that it's sinful pride at work? And what's going on here? Look at, uh, in Luke 20, verse 20, we read that the men sent to speak to Jesus pretend to be sincere. They're pretending. They're not really sincere. They're lying. They're not operating in good faith. They're being intentionally deceptive. Two, they try to flatter Jesus. They're being dishonest. Even if what they're saying is true, right? We know you speak the truth. We know Jesus, that, that, that you don't uh, uh, pay face value to people. You, you look at the heart. They're saying true things about Jesus. He doesn't show partiality, but they don't actually believe them. They're saying them to, to flatter Jesus, to get on his good side. And Luke tells us that Jesus sees through their craftiness. They're trying to be sly is what's happening. They're being deceptive. In Matthew's account, Matthew 22, Jesus calls their strategy malicious. You're acting out of malice, which is hatred. And in both Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls them hypocrites, with Mark adding that they are specifically putting Jesus to the test. So here's what I think is happening here. Their pride has now enlisted deception and dishonesty, malice, hypocrisy, in an attempt to take down Jesus. This is their tactic. Now, here's the problem with the tactic, is that the question that they ask him is a really good, legitimate question. It's a really good question, so much so that Jesus answers their question. And we'll get to his answer in a minute, because I think it's a good question. 
But here's a problem. Again, under this umbrella of the problem of politics, even though the question is good, motives matter. Motives are important. In the case of these men, their problem, it really isn't paying tribute to Caesar. Their problem is that Jesus is standing in the way of their power and their influence. I think pride is motivating their question, not genuine concern. And the reason I say that is because, as we've just unpacked, their reasoning, their motives are all exposed. They don't really want an answer for themselves. They aren't concerned about Rome's overreaching tax policy. They want Jesus to answer so they can play gotcha. You familiar with that phrase, a gotcha question? It's not a good faith question. It's intended to trap. And the reality is, we see this happen all the time. This is not an ancient Near East or a modern phenomenon. This happens all the time. It happens in our politics all the time, right? Some reporter will ask some candidate a loaded question that no matter how they answer it, they're probably going to look bad one way or another. And then after they answer the question, then you can label them according to how you wanted to label them when you asked them the question in the first place, right? Because no matter their answer, you're ready to paint the, the one who responds in a particular light. So just because the question's a good question doesn't mean the questioner is asking in good faith. Now, as an aside for you and me, when we come to God's Word with our questions and our doubts, do we come in good faith? Are we truly seeking clarity and understanding? Are we seeking the truth of a matter? Or do we come with misaligned motives, seeing only what we want to see, treating God's Word like these men treated Jesus, seeking only to put Him to the test rather than humbly seeking His wisdom? That's just an aside. Take that for what it's worth. Because these men who are questioning Jesus were not asking in good faith. And Luke tells us, that Jesus sees right through the facade, right through their motives, because he's Jesus. <laughs> he sees their hearts. He knows what they're up to. He knows they're not sincere, which is hard sometimes for us because you and I are limited, right? We can't always read our own motives, let alone the motives of other people. But part of how we can assess motives is looking at the end goal. So this is how we can check our own motives. Am I coming to God's Word like with sincere questions? Sincere hopes of His wisdom guiding me and teaching me or not? Well, what's the goal? Is it to understand? Is it clarity? Or is the end goal just to win no matter what? Right? The reason they chose this issue of paying taxes, at least one of the reasons they probably did, of paying taxes or paying tribute to Caesar is because this current hot-button issue had some very clear lines drawn in the culture. Very clear. The, the Roman government had instituted all kinds of taxes to be paid, and I suppose a good defender of Rome would say, but, but look at all we get from Rome, right? Because of our taxes. Look at what we get. We have security. We have sanitation. We have all the modern convenience of Roman technology in roads and water and agricultural technology, irrigation. I mean, this is the price we pay for living in a civilized society, a good defender of Rome might say. On the flip side, there are many Hebrew peoples who despise Roman taxation, 
despised it for multiple reasons, not the least of which was the fact that they were a conquered people. They didn't get to vote for Caesar. They didn't have a local rep that could be like, hey, I think you're overtaxing us too much. Like, they didn't have that. They don't have a say at all in how they were governed or how Rome spends their tax dollars. They are subjects to leaders who do what they see fit with the resources that they extract from the people that they have taken over and exploit. So, so for many people, taxation was legalized theft. You can see the, the line here, right? Notice how this applies pretty close to our modern sides on issues, right? So they don't like it for that reason. And so here's what's interesting of how what I, what I refer to as the problem of politics, how they start to play out here. In Matthew 22, we find that it's not just the chief priests and the scribes, but there are also Pharisees involved. That's a whole other group of, of, of people. We'll read next week, in the next section, a disingenuous question comes from a group of Sadducees who are also around. We'll talk about them next week. And we also find out, as we look at these accounts, that they reach out to a group of Herodians. And we don't read a lot about the Herodians. Here's a little sidebar. They were Hellenistic Jews, so Jews who were steeped in and influenced by Greek culture. And they were supportive of Herod, hence the name Herodians. Herod and his family kind of ruled as an ethnic and religious monarchy underneath the rule of Rome. So, so here's what we got with all these like, different political factions, if you will. Pharisees despised the Herodians because Herod was corrupt. Herod was cozy with Rome, and so they didn't like that. Sadducees like I said, we'll talk about next week, they didn't get along with the Pharisees because the Pharisees were zealous for the law and the Sadducees were essentially like dismissive of the law. So they didn't get along. Then you have the priests and scribes who at times didn't get along with either the Pharisees or the Sadducees because they were the religious professionals. They were the ones with authority. They ran the temple. They, they, they were important for the whole nation on that Point, and so their authority was paramount for them, so they didn't get along with them, but they were forced to play nice with people like the Herodians because this is just the world in which they live. So in order for us to maintain any kind of political power, we have to play ball. So you have all these, these factions who, on their own, don't get along, don't like each other at all. But because Jesus is a threat to all of them, they form this unholy political alliance they don't like each other, but they say, but we all like him less. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. That's what's happening here. This is politics. This is pure and simple politics. Let's make a deal. And because the Roman government had stripped the, the, the priest's ability to utilize capital punishment that they used to use under the law of Moses, they can't legally take Jesus outside and throw rocks at him till he dies. So what they're going to do is they're going to strike a deal with the Herodians to see if they can catch Jesus in a political trap. You see, one of the things that Rome took very seriously was the idea of treason and insurrection. If there was even a hint of rebellion or revolution, the Romans would quickly work to stop it. On the other hand, a large population 
of Jews hated Rome and their taxes. In fact, there were a handful of historical rebellious movements, both before the time of Jesus, under Roman rule, and after. Their hope was that a Messiah would come and destroy their occupiers and free them from their oppression. Again, you see the the sides here and the problem. Further, one last bit of information. The coin that was used to pay the tribute, usually historically referred to as a tribute penny, this Roman denarius, the image struck on the coin was the face of the current Caesar. At the time, it was Caesar Augustus Tiberius. And the inscription on the coin around his face was this, Caesar Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. The Romans believed that when Tiberius' father Augustus died, he ascended to a divine, godlike state. So Tiberius was often referred to as the son of God. So you can imagine many Jews at the time didn't even want to carry around a denarius because of it was like carrying around a little tiny blasphemous idol in your pocket. Right? Hence the question they're asking. Now we finally get to the question. I knew sorry it took a while. Verse 22. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? Now the reason I told you all that is because I wanted to set you up for the disingenuous question that's being asked but it is an important question. Would the law of Moses approve us giving tribute to Caesar? Here's why it's a gotcha question. If Jesus tells them, if he tells the crowds, well, no, it is not lawful for you to give tribute to Caesar, the people would love it, right? But Rome would hate it. If Jesus says, no, no, it is not lawful to give tribute to Caesar, then they had their reason to go to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor, and say, this man is fomenting rebellion. This man is telling people to not pay their taxes to Caesar. This man is speaking against the ruler of Rome. He's a rebel against Caesar. We know that's what they do because verse 20 tells us that's exactly what their plan was. If we can get him to say no, then we can go tell on him. We can tell the governor that he is anti-Rome and then they'll arrest him and we don't have to deal with him anymore. But what happens if Jesus says, yes, it is okay to pay tribute to Caesar with no qualifications? Well, here's why it's a win for the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the chief priests if Jesus says that. Because in the eyes of the people, Jesus was the man. He was the one they were waiting for. That was the growing chorus of belief amongst the people. And so if Jesus says, sure, pay your tribute to to, to Caesar and stops there, in the minds of all the people, they're like, well, wait a minute, what kind of Messiah is this? He's just going to go along with whatever Rome tells him to? I thought we were supposed to get freedom from our oppressors. This guy's paying them? So either he says, no, don't, and then Rome can come and arrest him, or yes, do, and then he is diminished. Jesus is diminished in the eyes of the people as God's Savior. You can see this like catch-22 they're trying to catch him in. 
So this unholy alliance of political rivals works this scheme in order to put Jesus into a no-win situation. Because if Jesus loses, they win. The goal isn't truth. The goal isn't caring for the people. The goal isn't clarity. Here, teach us something uh, interesting about how the law applies here, Jesus. They don't care about any of that. All they care about is winning. The problem with politics, right? Right? Wrong, integrity, ideals, values, the truth, all of those things are flexible as long as you win. Which, as a side note, perhaps is good for us to ask ourselves how much of right and wrong, how much of truth and justice, how much of integrity and moral values and ideals are we willing to bend or even completely lose or toss out in order to win an argument or to win in the public sphere? something you can chew on on your own. That's the first thing. There's a problem of politics that's rising to the surface here in this passage. So they level this political bomb of a question at Jesus' feet, and what does he do? He answers it, and he tells them, here's what you need to know about paying tribute. And that's the second part of our text today in Jesus' answer. Verse 24, Jesus says, show me that coin. Hand me a denarius. And this coin with the face of Caesar would have been about a day's wage for a a common soldier or or an entry-level worker, unskilled worker. This was essentially minimum wage. Jesus says, hand me one of those pennies. And then he asks the most important question in this entire section. Whose likeness, whose inscription does it have? I think this is the most important question Jesus asks in this whole text. Whose face is on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's face on the coin. And then Jesus says this, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And if Jesus would have stopped there, and that was the end of his sentence, you can imagine the Pharisees and the chief priests are like, We got him. We totally got him. But he doesn't stop there. He continues. He says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and, it's a fantastic and, and to God the things that are God's. So I think what Jesus is doing here is giving a remarkable biblical uh, lesson in the biblical concept of spheres of authority. Let me just unpack this for you. Here's Here's a fun side note today. At its most basic level, as the, as the Word of God, God's Word, the Bible, gives us instructions about who God is and who we are and how we live as God's people, carrying out God's mission for His glory, at the most basic level, there's a responsibility for the individual, right? We're called to, to follow Him, and that's laid out in Scripture all the time where there's instructions and details and, and, and encouragement and correction given to the individual. So that firstly, you're responsible for your own response to God's Word. You're responsible for yourself about how the Bible instructs us how to live. But then as you spread out into humanity, as those uh, rings, if you will, of authority start to work themselves out, there are other spheres that the Bible speaks pretty clearly to about how they're to operate. They start small and they work their way out. And so there's kind of some kind of theological framework. There's three that I think make a lot of sense. The sphere of family, the sphere of church, and 
the civil sphere or the, fear of the, the sphere of the state. So let me give a couple of descriptions for them and how they operate their roles within God's ordered world. First, the sphere of the family. There's instructions that God's Word gives for how the family operates. Family is designed and given for humanity's health, welfare, growth, education. Paul commands each husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians chapter 5. He tells each husband to nourish and cherish his wife. Those words literally mean feed and keep warm. And beyond that, it means to care for and provide for and protect. Parents, you're to raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians chapter 6. This word bring up or raise up speaks to giving counsel and direction in a culture. That is teaching and encouraging children in the things of the Lord, making sure the whole family is cherished, loved, cared for, built up, instructed, and provided for. These things are laid out in Scripture within the sphere of the family. Keep going. God also gives this next sphere of of authority, if you will, in the church. The church is given to the ministry of the Word, to the, the sacraments or the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper. The church is given the sphere of discipline. Jesus gives authority to the church as a whole to carry out his mission of making disciples. Matthew chapter 28, right? Go therefore to all the nations, make disciples, baptizing and teaching. That's given to the church. Paul outlines in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus 1 that within the church, God raises up and calls and equips qualified men to serve as elders within the context of a local church. Why? To train, teach, equip the church so that the church might carry out her ministry. To protect the flock from error. To carry out discipline for the purposes of reconciliation when necessary. So there's an authority we have in ourselves. There's an authority that God has instructed in the family. There's an authority that God's laid out for the church, right? And, and we as members submit to our elders and follow their example because the elders will stand before God and have to give an account for how they shepherded the souls of the members entrusted to them. And third, the civil sphere, that God is the one who establishes all kings and rulers, all of them, Romans chapter 13. God establishes every king and ruler. And God has given the state, if you will, or this civil sphere, specific authority to do a couple of really important things. Primarily this, to punish evil and to protect the innocent. Basically, biblically, the state has been given the authority of the sword for justice and is responsible to make sure that equal measures are used. Fairness is upheld toward all its citizens. It's kind of an equal protection under the law clause, if I can use that in our kind of modern constitutional framework, if I can say it that way. Both the Westminster Confession of Faith and the London Baptist Confession of Faith speak of the state state, using the phrase civil magistrate. I think we should bring back the phrase civil magistrate. I think it is way cooler. Here's how the London Baptist Confession of Faith speaks about this sphere. LBCF chapter 24, paragraph 1, says this. God, the supreme Lord and King of all the world, has ordained 
civil magistrates to be under him, over the people, for his own glory and the public good. And to this end, has armed them with the power of the sword for defense and encouragement of them to do good and for the punishment of evildoers. And then gives a cross-reference to Romans 13, verses 1 and 4. So here's what I think Jesus is doing. He's addressing this civic sphere, excuse me, um, get my words confused, this civil sphere of authority when he's being asked about paying tribute to Caesar. The taxes, if you will, established by this earthly government, Rome, even a pagan, oppressive government like the government of Rome, the government that would eventually put Jesus to death on one of their own evilly devised torture devices, a cross, even that government, Jesus is, is insinuating, is established by God. And so he's essentially saying, well, we owe them what belongs to them. 1 Peter chapter 2, the Apostle Peter writes to a group of Christians who are being persecuted for their faith by the Roman Empire. Peter writes this, 1 Peter chapter 2, he says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good, For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, Peter writes, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Peter says, pray for the one who is overseeing your persecution. Don't fear him. Don't fear him. Fear God. But pray for and honor the emperor. So it appears that Jesus is affirming the role of the state in some form and the right of the state to collect taxes or tribute so that it can carry out its God-ordained authority to punish evil and protect the innocent. Which is now where some of you are probably going, but hold a sec, hold on a second. What happens when the state acts outside of its authority? What happens when it actually doesn't protect the innocent, it hurts the innocent, and actually protects the wicked? I mean, governments wouldn't do that. But what happens when they do? What happens in places where the state actually forbids what God commands or commands stuff that God forbids? Well, in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested for teaching about Jesus. And in, in verse 28, this is what the council tells Peter and the apostles. We strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. You intend to blame us for killing Jesus. So what's happening here? This local council, which has some kind of authority in Jerusalem, is saying, hey, you can't preach about Jesus anymore. They're specifically contradicting what God has clearly told his people. 
And what does Peter do? Here's Peter's response. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostle ans- and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. So the question is, is Acts 5 and, 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 and 1 Peter here, are they in conflict? Is Peter arguing against Jesus here? I don't think so. Peter, who was beaten by the authorities for teaching about Jesus, says two things. After he was beaten, fear God, honor the emperor. So so let me just be really clear in case you were getting uncomfortable in your seat this morning. Jesus is not saying, Romans 13 verse 1 is not saying, 1 Peter 2 is not saying, and I am not saying that in order to obey the Bible, you need to submit in everything to the state when they say do or do not do. I'm not saying that. Jesus is not saying that. If any civil authority tells us, for example, that we have to stop preaching the gospel of Jesus, then we're just going to have to tell them, too bad. We're not going to stop. Because we must obey a command that outranks any government, leader, or authority. Because he outranks all of them. We will obey what God has said. You can do with us what you will. The reality is, they might throw us in prison. Or in Peter's case, beat us with sticks. I mean, probably not. Who knows? Do with us what you will, but we're not going to obey your rule to stop talking about it. And if that means beatings and imprisonments and death, then so be it. That's why this, I think, this idea of spheres of authority is important, right? There's going to be overlap. These aren't like ironclad, clear-cut lines between these categories. But the ideas of personal responsibility or the family and the church and the civil spheres are, are different, right? The, the, the civil authority doesn't have the right to tell you what to have for lunch today or what to serve your family. I mean, I suppose they could, but it's outside their sphere. That's actually your responsibility to feed your family. You decide what's, what's best for dinner tonight, right? The, the, the state has no right to tell us as a, as a local church how to worship God. God's word outlines how we're to worship, not them, Right? In the same way, you and I are not allowed to set up little courtrooms in our front yards to try to convict the local neighborhood hooligans for, like, running through our gardens. We can't be like judge, jury, executioner. We can't do that. It's not our responsibility. It's outside of our sphere, if you will. Does that make sense? One author on the subject said it this way, because life is messy, these spheres should not be understood as watertight, ironclad jurisdictions, but rather true assignments with real limitations, but which nevertheless may overlap in real life. God's clearly outlined various spheres of authority and gives us instruction on how to live according to them. And in this case, Jesus is pressing on the state and going like, y'all have to understand what they can and cannot do. Now, there's a whole lot more here, and I may have just opened up a can of worms, and some of you might want to disagree with me or fight with me on this. That is fine. We can do that later. You're buying the coffee, but we can have this conversation, right? There's a lot more we can get into. We just don't have time to get into today. I will put some resources like I tend to in the weekly update that might give some more uh, things to read on this topic. But I think it's important not only to look at this first part of Jesus' answer as a pretty straightforward answer of how we're to live in the world, but also let's make sure to look at the second half of the answer too. 
Jesus says, give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. And then he says, give to God what belongs to God. All of this is connected to whose image is stamped on what? Whose image is stamped on the coin? Well, it's it's Caesar's image. It's his coin. He issued it. We use it. But it's Rome's coin. When you filed your taxes this last week, probably, there's a line on there. Are you a U.S. citizen? Right? You have to, like, prove that when you fill out official government documents. The image, if you will, of your citizenship is what? It's a flag or a bald eagle or your driver's license or whatever, right? Your civic identity, what is stamped on you as a person in a state, if you will, you're a citizen of a country, a state, a city. It's part of your civic identity, right? What about your participation in the life of a local church? If you're a member at River City, you can say, I'm a member of this local church. I hold to these theological distinctives. I participate in community life here. I worship here. I partake of the Lord's Supper here. Your church identity is as a member of this local church. What about as a family? The image you bear in a family is, at bare minimum, your name, right? I belong to the Peterson clan. My kids bear that name. They're identified as part of our family. When my daughters grow up and, Lord willing, get married to godly men, they'll take their husband's last names. Why? Because they are going to be a part of that family. They're identifying now in that family. It's a a cultural identifier of belonging. So your family identity is your name. Right? These are all identifying marks. It's what's stamped, if you will, on those parts of who we are. So let me ask you this. What about who you are at your core? I think Jesus is very intentional when he asks whose likeness, whose image is stamped on this coin? Well, it's Caesar's image. Well, if Caesar's image is stamped on the coin, then the coin belongs to him. Who's stamped on you is what Jesus is saying. What's stamped on you is what's referred to as the imago Dei, the image of God. So the coin belongs to Caesar, but, but you and every other human being, you belong to God. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning. God, the masterful, creative artist, is sculpting the earth with mountains and fields and trees and flowers. He's carving out the oceans with his hands. He's filling the sky with birds and the fields with with animals and creatures and the seas with fish. And all of that was good. And then God says this, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27 of Genesis chapter 1. And so God made man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Jesus is very intentional when he asks, whose image is stamped on the coin? And whose image is stamped on you? Is the implied question. So how we live in and under a state in some way honors God 
and it honors those whom God has placed in authority over us. That's important. We give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. But I think of almost greater importance, what Jesus is saying here is that we are to give God all that is God's. Which begs the question, why are these men, and maybe why are we, not giving to God all that bears His image? That's the bigger issue. See, these priests and these Pharisees and the Herodians, they might grumble as they pay their taxes to Rome, but they still paid them. They still paid them. The thing they refused to pay was their tribute to God with their lives. Their lives were not surrendered to Him because they didn't love God or worship God. They didn't even grumbly like they paid their taxes, grumbling give their lives to God. And in the end, they were left speechless. They had no response to Jesus. I I love that interaction at the end. They marveled at his answer and they became silent. So from this question come two, from this passage come two questions for us. First, if we do indeed bear God's image, if we bear the mark of our creator, then we have to ask question one, do we actually give to God all that is his? Right? What is God's? Well, everything that bears his image. So the answer is, you do. <laughs> All that you are, body, soul, spirit, you bear the mark of your creator. And what is owed God? But worship and praise and honor and obedience and love, right? Romans chapter 12, Paul writes this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies is tribute. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Hebrews chapter 13, through him, through Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, let us continually offer up, this is tribute language, a sacrifice of praise to God that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do we call him God? 1 Peter chapter 2, Peter writes, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, speaking of Jesus, he says, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be, ho- to be a holy priesthood, to offer, tribute, spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. The words of Jesus in Luke 20 are a judgment on those who refuse to bow their knee to God in worship, And those words from Jesus are an invitation for you and me. You and I today, right now, bear the mark of our maker. And so you and I are being invited today to acknowledge him as sovereign Lord, as our creator, as our God, and in response to offer to him all of our lives in worship for his glory. It's an invitation. Offering to God all that is his already. Here's the second question. Do all of our other tributes sit properly under our tribute to Jesus? Do all of our tributes, because we offer them to various places, honor and respect and taxes, if you will, to all other places, do they properly have their place as underneath the ultimate tribute to Jesus? It used to be 
Back when I was young, I'm having these like when I was a kid moments now. It used to be that politics and political campaigns came and went like seasons. However, it kind of seems lately like politics and political campaigns are more like the winter that we've just had that just wouldn't end. Someone asked me today if, if me wearing short sleeves, does that mean I've put away my sweaters and I'm like, I'm living in rebellion to the winter that won't end by wearing short sleeves today. The sweaters are still in the closet. I haven't put them away yet, just in case. But it used to be that like politics had seasons, right? Now it's like it's all the time. It's never ending and annoying. But there's something here, I think. Do all of our other agendas and all of our other responsibilities and do all other authorities, lowercase a, live in our lives in submission underneath Jesus? I think it's a valid question. Pastor Alistair Begg says this, that all of our political agendas take a distant second place when we become disciples of Jesus. And we're not just talking about like uh, federal politics and political parties when we talk about political agendas, right? We can't put our party or political ideology above devotion to Christ, to the regular, joyful, humble submission to the authorities that God has placed over us for His glory. And you and I are called to live in gracious accountability within this community of people that God has redeemed together as one people with Jesus as our head. Alistair Begg continues. He says this. I found it convicting, so again, I'm welcoming you into that. He says, that's why I say to you that whatever my objectives, whatever my concerns, whatever my political designs, desires, whatever my economic theories, they have to be a distant second to my submission to the kingship of Christ. It doesn't mean I don't believe what I believe, but it means that I will not exalt to a position my belief in these things so as to rob me of meaningful friendship and fellowship with those who have an entirely different perspective on the same subject. We don't exalt party or political position above Christ. We don't exalt country above Christ. We don't exalt church above Christ. We don't exalt family above Christ. We certainly don't advance and exalt self above Christ. Rather, because we bear the imago Dei, We bear the image of God. We all offer back to God all of who we are because He deserves all of that. It all belongs to Him. And I believe we honor God as we honor those that He has placed in authority over us within those spheres. That it is actually worshiping God to live and operate underneath the authorities He's given. Sometimes that means defiance. Sometimes that means taking the consequences. Fear God. Honor the emperor. So when children honor their parents, they're honoring the Lord who put them in that family. When members follow the instructions and the counsel of their elders, they're honoring the Lord who called them as elders and members together in that local body. When citizens honor and pray for their leaders, they're honoring the Lord who placed that leader, whether president or dictator, in that place of authority. And when leaders do evil and command evil, citizens can honor God by obeying God rather than men 
and joyfully submitting to whatever immoral punishment that evil, evil leadership might come up with. Not because parents and elders and leaders are always right, because clearly that is not the case. I'm example number one. We don't always make the best decisions in our responsibilities in those spheres. It doesn't mean that kids can't help parents. Because our kids do that. It doesn't mean members can't correct elders or citizens can't vote out ineffectual leaders. Because God in His gracious providence has established these things on the whole for human flourishing and for bringing honor to Himself. Remember, in Acts chapter 5, after Peter told the council that they would obey God rather than men, the council had them beaten and charged them again to not speak in the name of Jesus and then let them go. Verse 41 of Acts chapter 5. They were beaten and told, stop doing this. Verse 41, chapter 5. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name, the name of Jesus. <laughs> I love this. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They told us not to, but because God is sovereign and his authority is over all, we're going to do it anyway, and if they beat us again, so be it. Christ deserved all of their lives because all of their lives belong to him. That's why it was Peter, who was beaten for Jesus, can later write to a group of persecuted Christians, fear God, honor the emperor. Friends, your life is marked by God. You bear his image. And as our creator and as the ruler over all things, we offer back to God all honor and all worship and all praise. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you that it is actually your grace that puts authorities in our lives to teach us, to correct us, to encourage us, to train us. And we want to offer back to you as those who bear your image the worship and praise that is due you alone. Father, for those here even this morning who have not bowed the knee to Jesus as Lord, as Savior. That you would break through that unwillingness, that inability. That we might render to you all that is yours, which is our very lives. And we pray that you might be honored, that you might receive praise that you might receive tribute through our lives as we joyfully work and live in the places and structures and relationships that you've given us. As members of our country or state or city, as members of this community, as brothers and sisters together in this local church, in the families you've placed us, that we might honor you as we joyfully and humbly live 
in these spheres you've called us to live in. Thank you for what you've done, Lord Jesus, in purchasing a people for yourself, that in your body you bore our sin, that you shed your blood that we might be washed clean and forgiven, and in so doing you are creating for yourself a, a people with you at the head. We honor you and worship you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.